I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. You can go in the beginning, Genesis, the book of origins, and then Exodus is the next book. We're going to be in chapter 3. And last week we kicked off our series uh, walking through Exodus, looking at how it begins. It sets up by connecting us to Genesis and understanding our origins and the origins of God's people. And this week we're going to read a very familiar passage. And even if you've never stepped foot in a church, you've probably heard about what we're going to read about. And really, the encounter that Moses has with God in a burning bush in in Exodus 3 and 4 is all one unit. And next week, we're going to continue. This is really part one. We're going to continue how once we encounter God, what that does to us, how it commissions and sends us into the world. And this week, we're going to look at encountering God himself. And I'm going to read our passage. It's Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the Lord. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite and Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites and Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Here we have Moses having a personal encounter with God. You know, there's something significant and special about first encounters with people that we care about. You might even remember them. You didn't know the significance of it in the moment, but when you look back, you think, wow, how life would be different if that meeting, that encounter never took place. Maybe you think of your spouse, and the first time you met your spouse, 
Little did you know in that moment that your lives would eventually be changed forever. I remember meeting Megan on move-in day. I was a junior. She was a sophomore in college. And I was working with a guy helping college students move in who was legally blind. And Brian and I, who was also our pastor, moved Megan into her apartment. And I didn't know, but at the time she had a friend who said, oh, you need to meet this guy, Jay. I thought it was just this normal encounter. And then and she thought, oh, this is the guy I've heard about. This is Jay. Wow, this is, well, it wasn't too exciting because, you know, nothing materialized at that moment. But eventually I sold her and, and things moved forward. You think about your first encounter of meeting your kids. And that's a little different because you know when you're holding your child for the first time, when you meet your kid for the first time, significant. This is your child. Never forget that moment. Or a friend, meeting a special friend for the first time. I remember a few years ago, it was summer of 2011, I think. I don't remember dates very well, but it was a year, a few, few years ago. And this, this guy from Virginia showed up at our house. And the first time we met, he was also moving in. And his name was Mike Juday. He moved in, showed up at our porch. We took him, took him in, and, and we commissioned our friendship by going to White Castle and had that amazing experience together and getting sick, and, you know, it was a good time. You look back on those moments, the first time we meet someone, the first time we encounter someone. Here in Exodus, we see Moses meeting God, a personal encounter with God. And it's interesting because it seems so impersonal. This fire and a bush. And, and this is what's called a theophany, an appearance of God. And often in the Bible, a theophany, God's appearance is, is expressed in fire. We see it here in Exodus 3. We see it uh, later in Exodus, got a pillar of fire in the sky to lead God's people. We see a number of prophets like Ezekiel and Elisha meeting God as fire. But it can be tempting to read something like this and think, how, what, how do I meet God today? A fire in a bush. I don't know what that's about. And you know, it's interesting as we begin and we consider what this can look like. You know, some Jewish rabbis, in com commenting on this text, they make the observation, they ask the question, how long would it take for someone to notice that the bush was burning and yet it's not consumed? At first glance, you see a fire in a bush, and it wouldn't, been, it wouldn't have been that abnormal in the desert. But Moses had to be looking at it long enough to notice that it wasn't burning up. And what they're observing here is this, that Moses was willing to slow down, willing to see, willing to be present, and willing to allow what could otherwise be a very normal occurrence to speak to him in a very extraordinary way. Uh, one poet and dancer and professor, Barbara Browning, she comments on this this way. I love what she says. She says, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. God's presence can be experienced and seen all around us, and yet we don't have eyes to see. Eugene Peterson, an author and pastor, he says, to, to eyes that see, every bush is a burning bush. And so this morning, 
we want to consider how we can encounter the same God that Moses encountered many years ago. What does this teach us about who God is and how we can encounter that God today? I want to make four observations about the fire and the burning bush, what it teaches us about God and how we can encounter him personally today. Who is God? The first thing we learn about God is this, that God is holy. God is holy. God is utterly unique. God is different. Fire represented power. Fire represented purity. It was to be respected. It was powerful. In verse 5, God responds to Moses. He says to him, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. You can underline that, circle that holy ground. Holy means to be different, to be unique. And all understanding of God begins by acknowledging that attribute, that God is holy. Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus begins, holy is your name. God, hallowed be your name. If I were to ask you, when someone asks you, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about God? What is it? <laughs> Probably for many of us here, the first thing that may come to mind, the first thing that often comes to my mind may be God's love, God's loving presence. Maybe it's God's grace. And if someone responds with, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of God is holiness, we think, oh, okay. That sounds like a good church answer, holy. And holy, holy is one of those words that's often just used in the church. We don't use it often in conversations in the marketplace or with our friends. Holy is one of those church words. And to say God is holy seems like one of those good church answers. And if someone says that, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of God is he's holy. It's almost like they need to talk in a different tone, like God is holy, yes. And you, and you think when someone responds that way, yes, you know, that's, yeah. I think that's right, and that's good that you think that way about God, but, you know, I don't know if I want to go with you to the movies. I don't know if you, and, and you wonder if someone says the holiness of God is the first thing that comes to mind, you wonder if they ever laugh. You're just thinking, like, do you have fun in life? Do you, you know, the holiness of God, that's what comes to mind, that, that's what excites you. It's God's holiness. You know, when I think of the term holy, I, the first thing that comes to mind for me, I think of this giant Bible we had in our home growing up. This big Bible, it was somewhere in the living room, and the only person I think who touched it was me as a young kid flipping through it, looking at the pictures and having nightmares of what I saw in, in the, the big holy Bible that people didn't open or turn to. It was just there. And oftentimes, God's holiness can feel that way. We don't get it. It's different. It's unique. What does it mean for us today? But it means so much. It means so much. Because you cannot understand the personal attributes of God. You cannot really understand the love of God if you don't first see and begin to grasp his holiness. Because God is utterly unique. Utterly unique. You know, we want to come to God. We often want to come to God as this spiritual guide. We want God to be a guru of sorts so we can come to and say, question, God, you know, any tips that you would offer 
on navigating this relational challenge? Any advice you'd give on what neighborhood we would move into, God? We want to come to God as a spiritual guru. Uh, often, some of us, we want to come to God as a spiritual genie. We want to know what's the magic words to get God to pop up in a bush and tell us what to do or to take care of some business that we have. We want God to be a spiritual guru, a genie, but that's not who he is. God is holy, powerful, utterly unique and different from anything else that we experience And when we try to take away the holiness of God from God, what we do is we create a God in our image. We create a, we we don't create so much a God as much as we do just ourselves affirming our every desire and wishes. We begin in encountering God by acknowledging his holiness in all of of his uniqueness and seeing it as good news good news, the good news of God's uniqueness, the good news of God's unique love. God's love is so different. We sang the hymn this morning, Holy, Holy, Holy. And one of the the stanzas in it is perfect in love and purity. God doesn't love like we do. God doesn't love like I do. Often, in fact, almost every time that I love, there's a mixture of motives. (laughs) There's a mixture of motives. If I'm doing something kind to you and nice to you, and I may say, oh, you know, I just wanted to help out. But possibly there was a part of my heart that want, wants you to repay that. God's love is so different than ours. It's holy love. It's sacrificial love. God's forgiveness is utterly unique. If God isn't holy, then his forgiveness may be like our forgiveness. It may one day run out. And when we don't have an appreciation or an understanding or come to God in his holiness, we may be prone to think that maybe we've done something that he won't forgive. God's love is unique. His his forgiveness is unique. And God's, he's uniquely eternal. And this is what we see next about God. Who is God? What is God? He's holy. He's different. And one of the ways in which he is different is God is eternally self-sufficient. He's eternally self-sufficient. Moses sees the bush burning, and it says in verse 2, yet it was not consumed. It was not consumed. What we have here, one commentator notes that, again, God is demonstrating his power over creation, his power over the created world. We also see that the fire is sustained in and of itself. It doesn't need fuel. It doesn't need the, it doesn't need the wood. It doesn't need the bush to burn. It's self-sustaining. And God is eternally self-sufficient. He needs no one. He's dependent on nobody. And we see this communicated in the, in the name that he has given. Moses, he comes to God and God says to him, I'm sending you to deliver my people. And Moses asks, he's like, who am I going to tell him? What's your name? Who is the God who's sending me? And God responds. He says, God says to Moses, I am who I am says, say to this people, to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. I am who I am. Now, many translations translate this differently, and it's almost untranslatable. The reason, because when Moses says, ask God, what is your name? God gives him the verb to be, to be. In fact, the kind of the literal translation, which is hard to grasp, is God is saying, say to them, being itself 
has sent you. Being itself sends you. And uh, what we learn here is this, that God is eternal. There never will be a time when it is said of God that he was. And there never was a time where it will be said of God that he will be. God is eternally self-sufficient. Now for you, I don't know about for you, but for me, that's confusing. That God is eternal, eternally self-sufficient. It doesn't seem to make much sense. And in fact, one noted atheist says this about God. If God is eternal and God is, is the creator of the world, then who created God? See, this makes no sense. But one thing, actually, this attribute of God, this quality of God, can be one of the greatest apologetics for God. And here's why. One of the greatest apologetics for God is the question of who is the prime mover of the universe, what philosophers ask, the prime mover, the first cause that set every other cause into existence. Who created everything? You see, because what the atheist doesn't acknowledge is that to believe in God is to believe in the supernatural. And if there is no supernatural, if there is no prime mover, then how are we all here? That there is a prime mover is in and itself a miracle. When you come to faith and the belief in God and trust in God is as the I am, the eternally self-sufficient God, now you can look at creation completely different. You see meaning and order and beauty and love, not just chaos. If there is no God, then how are we here? Is the prime mover of the universe. This is an apologetic for God. But also, when we encounter the I am, it's, it's humbling. It doesn't just shape how we view creation. It shapes how we see ourselves. And we don't, we don't, if we're honest, we don't like the idea that we're not the God. That we're not in ultimate control. That we don't define our destiny coming to the reality that God is in control, that God is God and we are not. It's humbling. You know, Moses acknowledges this. Moses knows this. He comes to God. God says, listen, Moses, I'm sending you to deliver my people. Now, there's something you know about Moses in this moment. And we see it at the very beginning in verse 1. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. (laughs) Moses has fallen a long way. He was raised in a prominent Egyptian household, made some mistakes, And now he's living with his (laughs) father-in-law. Now he's tending to sheep. And Egyptians, we learn in Genesis that Egyptians, they despised shepherds. You can almost imagine Moses growing up like, man, life's hard, but at least I'm not a shepherd. And those shepherds, man, they, they stink. They have it hard. And here he is, Moses is tending the flock of his father in law Moses has fallen a long way. Moses is aware of his inadequacies. He's aware that he's not God. He comes, he says, who am I? Who am I, God? But you know, this is also liberating. It's liberating for Moses because when we come to acknowledge that God is eternal and self-sufficient, we can rest in his power and his love and his work. It's liberating to be able to acknowledge that I am a human being. I'm a person like every other person. The existence of the world isn't dependent on me. The wrongs of the world aren't going to be corrected all by me. That I can trust in the providence 
and work and hand of God. And God can send me into the world to bring about moments of redeeming moments. But it's not all on my shoulders. We encounter an eternally self-sufficient God. And that can lead me to trust him, to be humbled by him, and to rest in his work. We also see God communicate who he is, who God is. We see that God, thirdly, we learn that God is personal. God is personal. You know, fire represents power, but it also provides warmth. It sustains life. Fire is personal. It warms. Moses, he says, or God says to Moses in verse 4, when the Lord, Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. He said, Moses, Moses. Mind here that God is personal. God knows Moses' name. God calls Moses by name. God doesn't see Moses and respond with an impersonal, hey, hey, you, hey, you, you, guy, guy walking by. God doesn't say, hey, hey, earthling, uh, human, human over here. God doesn't call Moses by his occupation, hey, shepherd. Shepherd man, oh, he calls him by his name. Moses, God calls him by his name. You know, one way we extend and receive love is by calling each other by our name. Think for a moment of a public figure that you greatly admire and respect. Maybe a hero that you have. Maybe a musician like Kendrick Lamar or Bono or Justin Bieber. Or an author or poet like Gregory Pardlow, or politician like George Bush or Barack Obama, or an athlete or pastor like Tim Keller. Think for, for a moment about someone that you greatly admire and respect. Now imagine later this afternoon you go and you're having lunch and you're at Hot Chicken Takeover and you see that person. You know, for me growing up, a person I greatly admired and looked up to was a hero was Barry Larkin. The shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds. I loved watching Barry Larkin play shortstop was like watching art. The way he fielded the ball, it was so smooth. I mean, I can imagine it right now. I loved Barry Larkin. And if I saw Barry Larkin at a hot chicken takeover this afternoon and I walked in, I would be awestruck and probably just run away, kind of like Moses a little bit in fear right there. But if he said to me, Jay, 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 O'Brien, I would be shocked. Of course, Barry Larkin, you know me, I'm just little Jay, and you're Barry Larkin, you call me by name. You know, the holy, eternally self-sufficient God knows your name. You can spend the rest of the week just meditating on that fact and it can transform your life. God calls him by name, Moses, Moses. And, and God is personal. He is pursuing Moses. He's pursuing him. In fact, uh, one person notes that in ancient uh, Semitic culture, to repeat someone's name, it was called a, rep a repetition of endearment. It was, a, it was an expression of an intimacy. I was saying, Moses, Moses, come here. Moses, Moses, God is pursuing him. And it struck me this week in reading this that Moses, 
He doesn't know God's name, but God knows his. Moses, in some way, may not have even known that he was searching for God, but you know what? God was pursuing and searching for Moses. This isn't a random encounter. It's not like God was chilling in a bush and then Moses just happened to walk by. No, it's just like God to be in control even when we don't see it or know it. God is pursuing Moses. There's no random encounter. God is personal. He speaks in ways that Moses and we can understand. He calls him by name. And I love this about God. I love this about God. He's not trying to make finding him complicated. You know, sometimes religious people and pastors want to make finding God really complicated. We want to use language that you don't understand. We want to make it a formula that's very hard to do. We want to add a list of all the things you need to do to encounter God, to find God. And God, he wants to simplify it. He wants to call you by name. He wants you to experience him in the normal, everyday existences of life. Moses is in a desert doing his job, and God can be found right there. Right there. God is personal. And he wants you to experience him and encounter him in personal ways. He knows your name. He loves you. He's pursuing you. And he does not want to make following him complicated for you. What are the ways in which you experience God personally? Maybe even just acknowledging that you don't know how to do that is step one. Who is this God? This holy, transcendent, yet imminent and personal God. How is he to be found? How is he to be experienced in personal ways? He doesn't just reveal himself to the cultural elites. He reveals himself to ordinary, normal people like you and me. As to Moses, you've been cast out of Egypt. You have nothing to offer. You've fallen so far, but I'm not done. God is pursuing Moses personally. Who is God? He is holy. God is eternally self-sufficient. God is personal. And lastly, we see that God is the Redeemer. In verse 7, God shares why he's calling Moses. The Lord said to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I've seen their suffering. I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them. I have a plan. And I want to redeem my people. I want to deliver my people. I want to save my people. Verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Who is God? Who is this God calling and sending Moses, the holy, self-sufficient, personal deliverer? This is God. And it's important to know if there's any... One of the things the author of Exodus, which many people believe is Moses, if there's one thing that, they, that the author wants you to know, it's that Moses is not the deliverer. Moses is God's agent, but God is the deliverer. God is the one who will redeem. God is the one who will rescue. God is in control. God is the one, the redeemer that God's people then and all of us today need. You know, it begins by saying the angel of the Lord called to Moses. And, and the early church fathers and many today believe that the angel of the Lord was the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. 
And there is some debate about that, but many people believe that Jesus is here, that Jesus is the angel of the Lord, God's messenger. But regardless of whether the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ or not, when we read this in light of who Jesus is, it can transform the nature of the redemption that God provides. On one occasion in John chapter 8, Jesus is having conversations with people at the temple, and he was confusing people. Jesus is at the temple. He's been healing people. His power, his reputation has gone before him. People know he's been doing some miraculous things, and he's teaching in ways that's confounding people. He's confusing some of them, and they ask him this question. I love this. In John 8, 48, they say to Jesus, much like Moses, kind of asking God, who are you? They ask Jesus to say, are we not right? I love that leading question. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's a good question. Are we not right, Jesus, in saying you're a Samaritan and a demon? Wrong on both accounts. Um, Jesus was Jewish and didn't have a demon. And Jesus is so kind and patient, and he communicates with them, but then he says this. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. If Jesus wanted to say that he existed before Abraham, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And rightly, uh, the Jews here, they picked up stones to throw at them. And, and I kind of have this funny episode in my mind. Jesus says this and runs away, and they're all throwing stones. But this would have been serious. I mean, they're trying to stone Jesus. They're trying to kill him because they knew what he was saying. Jesus was planting his flag in the deity. He's saying, I'm not just some carpenter. I'm not just some man. I am the same God in the bush, the burning bush of Moses. I am the same God that spoke life into existence. I am the holy, eternally sufficient, personal God here to provide redemption, here to provide deliverance. In the same way, Yahweh worked through Moses to deliver God's people by parting the sea through Jesus Christ on the cross. He parts death and life so that we could be accepted by God. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God. Jesus reflects the holiness, the power, the love, and the grace of God. And so the question for me and you today is how can we encounter this God personally? How can you encounter God? Are you looking for him? Are you open to being found? Are you open to being found by God? How are you encountering God? Are you in awe of his holiness? In all of his transcendence and his power and his beauty? Are you open to being reassured by his eternal self-sustaining power? Are you willing to be loved and to invite him to personally pursue you? And are you open to being redeemed by the finished work of his son? How are you encountering God today? Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for being God. A God who is both holy and transcendent and yet personal and eminent. Thank you for being a God who both has the power to speak life into existence and the love to call us by name. Lord, work in our minds. Awaken our minds that we may know you. That we may think like you think. Awaken our hearts that we may believe and trust you and desire you and desire your work in this world. And shape our hands that we may bring your love and grace to a hurting world. We pray this in the name of your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.